a few years ago, if you recall, there was a book written by Joel Osteen called Living Your Best Life Now. And if you remember, this book took the Christian world by storm. And unfortunately, many believers who read this particular book began to pattern their lives according to the principles that were taught within this book. And because Joel Olstein is a prosperity preacher, he sent many believers on a course of seeking fulfillment through the pursuit of worldly success. And the term living your best life even wove itself into our common American vernacular. And there's nothing wrong when we jokingly say that we're living our best lives. But when believers make the pursuit of their of success their primary purpose in life, it is a great error. Because our primary purpose should not be to live our best life now. Our primary purpose should be focused on how we can glorify God best now. Our focus and primary purpose should not be how we can live a life of luxury. Our purpose should be how we can live a life in exaltation of God. It should be focused on, we, on how we should live a life in worship of God. And that is the title of the sermon that I'll be preaching today, A Life of Worship. And this sermon is based upon the scriptures found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Now this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul in A.D. 58, and he wrote it to the believers in Rome because they had not been previously exposed to apostolic teaching. Therefore, Paul sought to introduce himself to them and to further establish them in the truth of God's word. And Paul, during the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he goes on to point out all of the spiritual blessings that are possessed by the believers in Jesus Christ. And after he presents all of these blessings, he then ends chapter 11 with a doxology. And after that doxology, he then changes his focus and he charges the believers in Romans 12.1. He charges them to give back sacrificially to God in response to the manifold blessings that God has given to them. And to give further context, I'll go ahead and read, as we read before, Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. Now here, after that doxology and the presentation of all the blessings in the first 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul says to the believers in Rome, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are the words spoken to the apostle, by the Apostle Paul to these Roman believers, and he begins it in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Now, with the use of that word, therefore, he is referring back to the doxology that he just ended in chapter 11, which forms verses 33 through, through on 36. And he ends that doxology with verse 36 when he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. With those words, Paul makes it clear that everyone and everything in this world is subject to God. And after he makes this clear, he then goes on to say, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now with that phrase, I urge you, that forms the foundation of Paul's exhortation to these Roman believers. That forms the foundation of him encouraging them to place the entirety of their lives in subjection to God. It forms the foundation of his admonishment that they should submit all that they are unto God. And Paul uses the full weight of his apostolic authority in order to compel these Roman believers and you and I to submit our lives unto God. He uses the full weight of his authority, which he introduced in the first 11 chapters, to compel those Roman believers to place their lives completely before God as an offering. He uses the full weight of his authority to identify him as the one who has been sent by God to proclaim the gospel, to lay the foundation of the church, to perform miracles and advance the kingdom of God. And because he speaks with such authority, I do believe it is important for each and every one of us to listen to the words that the Apostle Paul has to say to the Romans. Because as he speaks to them, as he compels them, 
by the Holy Spirit, he's compelling you and I. He's compelling you and I also to place our lives on the altar of God that we may live in subjection to him and give him the glory that he rightfully deserves. And although Paul says this with great authority, he compliments it with great compassion. For he then uses the term brethren. And with that term, which is a term of endearment, he identifies the Roman believers as his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He identifies them as those who are members of the household of faith. He identifies them as those who have been delivered from depravity into the everlasting light of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and as he identifies them as such, he compels them to place their lives in the hands of God. He compels them, urges them, and admonishes them that as his brethren, as his fellow believers in Jesus Christ, everything that they are, everything that they have, all of their hopes, all of their minds, all of their wills, all of their emotions, everything should be subject and given to God in response to the manifold blessings that he has given to them. And as he speaks to them, we also should be compelled to do exactly what he goes on to say. And after Paul expresses himself with great compassion, with great love to his fellow brethren in Christ, after he identifies the fact that they are the ones who have received the great blessings of God, that they are the ones who have received the great mercies of God, he goes on to say that by the mercies of God, they should present their bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. Now there, when he says, by the mercies of God, he is identifying all of the spiritual blessings that he has wrote, written about in the previous 11 chapters. He is identifying the fact that all the spiritual blessings that these believers possess, they are given to them by God. And the first and foremost of these great blessings, the first and foremost of these great mercies is God's magnificent love. For as it says in 1 John 4.19, we loved him because he first loved us. And because he first loved us, he sacrificed his son on the cross to die for our sins. Because he first loved us, he sacrificed his son on the cross for his elect believers. Because he first loved us, he sacrificed his son upon the cross for those whom he created in order to worship him. This was done because of God's great love. And another one of the great mercies that the believers in Rome and each and every one of us possess and receive is the mercies of God's great grace. 
In other words, the undeserved mercy that he has given to each and every one of us who lived in rebellion against him. The great grace and mercy that he has showed to each and every one of us who lived in opposition to him, who lived in hatred towards him. Because, as we all know, instead of God giving us what we do deserve for our rebellion, instead of giving us what we have truly and duly earned, instead, God has given us eternal life through the sacrifice of his son and that cross on Calvary. And because of these great mercies of his great love and his great grace, it says in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So it is by God's great grace that we have received the free gift of salvation, the free gift of eternal life, the free gift of spending all of our eternity in heaven with our beloved Savior. It is by his grace and by his love that we have received all the mercies that we have. And those mercies that we have in God, they are endless in their constitution. Those mercies that we have in God, they are infinite in their composition. Those mercies include his justification. It includes his sanctification, his glorification. It includes his joy, his peace, his hope. It includes his forgiveness, his kindness, his access. It includes his his mercy, his spirit, his guidance. It includes all the riches and all the rewards and all the blessings that we have through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The mercies that we possess because we have entrusted our lives to Jesus Christ are endless in nature. And because of these great blessings, because of these great mercies, the Apostle Paul then goes on to command the believers in Rome and each and every one of us to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. When Paul says to present your bodies, there he is commanding the believers to offer themselves up to God. And we know this is a command because in the Greek, it's in the imperative. So here Paul is commanding those believers and you and I to surrender all that they are up to God. He is commanding each and every one of us to yield all that we are up to God. And he commands us in this way because he understands that only believers can respond to an admonition such as this. Only believers can respond to such a command because unbelievers cannot do anything to please God. Unbelievers cannot offer themselves up to God in any way that brings pleasure to him. Because his scriptures are clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are what? Foolishness to him. For they are spiritually appraised. 
Therefore, the unregenerate person cannot understand or accept anything of the Spirit of God. The natural man, the unregenerate, the unbeliever cannot do anything to please God. They cannot offer themselves or anything that they have in a way that blesses and honors God. This is what Paul spoke about in Romans 8.8 8, when he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There he makes it very clear that the unbeliever can do nothing to please God. Therefore, this admonition goes to the brethren. This admonition goes to those believers who have submitted their lives to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This admonition goes to those who are the members of the household of faith. And after Paul establishes this truth and commands them to present their bodies, he goes on to command them to present their bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, when he uses this phrase, a living and holy sacrifice, this is the language of the Levitical priesthood found in the Old Testament. This is the language surrounding those religious rituals that the Levitical priests had performed on behalf of the Jewish people. Because if you recall, whenever a Jewish person desired to be forgiven by God, they had to go and get an animal sacrifice, bring it to the priest, who would then take it into the temple, kill the animal, and place it upon the altar on behalf of the person as a sacrifice unto God. However, those animal sacrifices are no longer needed. Those animal sacrifices are no longer required by God because when Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on that wooden cross on Calvary, he perfectly satisfied the wrath of God. He perfectly satisfied the justice of God. And therefore, no more animal sacrifices are needed. This is why the scriptures in Hebrews 7.27 concerning Jesus Christ says, he no longer needs, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So when Christ offered up himself, he died once for all. And therefore, no animal sacrifices are now required by God. The only sacrifice required according to the new covenant is for believers to offer themselves up to God as living and holy sacrifices unto him. The only sacrifice required by the new covenant is for believers to offer all that they are, all that is valuable to them, all that they possess all of their minds, all of their wills, all of their emotions. This is what is required to make it a little bit more practical. God does not require you just to offer yourself for two hours on Sunday. Amen? He requires for you to offer yourselves Monday through Saturday, every minute of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year until you see his face. He requires us to do what many of us did yesterday 
you gave up your Saturday morning. Right? You could have went to the mall. You could have, you could have went to visit some family members. You could have caught up on some of your to-do lists that you didn't get to do during the week. But instead, by the mercies of God, in response to the great sacrifice that he has made, many of us went out into the community and shared the gospel so that those who God has elect would come to believe and come to service and worship him. The amount of planning that our brother Ryan and Amber and Stephen and Pastor Paul and so many others who had the vision for yesterday, the amount of planning and sacrifice it took was significant. But it was worth it because our Savior, our Lord, he has gone before us on that cross and given up all of himself for us. And therefore, we should be willing to give up all of ourselves unto him. Amen? Now, after Paul makes it clear that and commands these Roman believers and us to present our bodies as living sacrifice, he adds to that command and also compels all believers to give themselves up as a holy sacrifice. That word holy is defined as to be set apart for a special purpose. And what are we to be set apart from? We are to be set apart from the world. And for what purpose? For the purpose of glorifying God. We are to be set apart and distinct from the world for the purpose of glorifying God. And when that word, the world, is used there, it is not referring to the physical world. It is referring to the philosophies that govern the evil world system that we live in. It is referring to the thoughts and the popular, popular opinions of the age that those Roman believers exist in. Because Paul understands that this world that the Roman believers lives in was under the power of Satan. He understands that the philosophies that permeated during the day, they were influenced by the evil one. For John makes this clear in 1 John 5.19 when he says, the world and the power in it lies in the hands of the evil one. So Paul understood that the power of this world lies in the hands of Satan. And because of this, he commands the believers and each and every one of us to place ourselves as an offering on the altar of God as a holy sacrifice. He commands us to live lives according to the scriptures. He commands us to live lives that are righteous in nature. And how do we live lives that are righteous in nature? We only accomplish that by living our lives according to the principles and precepts that we find throughout the entire canon of Scripture. The only way that we achieve that is by living our lives according to the edicts and the testimonies of God. This is what 
the psalmist David spoke about in Psalm 119, when he says, I have stored up the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Come on, it's, it's only when a believer has stored up the word of God in their hearts can they live a life that does not sin against God. It is only when a believer has stored up the word of God in their hearts can they live a life that is righteous before God. And therefore, the Apostle Paul calls the Romans and each and every one of us by the power of God to live lives that are holy, that are pure, that are righteous, so that God may be blessed by it, so that God may be honored by it. But the wonderful thing is that unlike those animal sacrifices, when they're offered unto God, they are destroyed by him. But when we offer ourselves up to God, God doesn't destroy us. He blesses us. He honors us. He purifies us. And he uses us for his great glory. And therefore, the Apostle Paul compels each and every one of us to yield ourselves up to God because God has yielded his son Jesus Christ up for us. And after Paul makes this evident to all who were under the writing of his letter, he then goes on to say that this is acceptable to God. When believers live holy lives, righteous lives, according to the principles of our magnificent Father in heaven, he finds it acceptable to him. And after that beautiful proclamation of acceptance to God, the Apostle Paul then goes on to compel those Roman believers once more, and he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. And when Paul uses this particular phrasing, he is compelling these believers that the only reasonable response to the God who has sacrificed his son on their behalf the only reasonable response to the God who sits upon high and who is holy and perfect, the only reasonable response to the one who from him and through him and to him are all things, the only reasonable response is for the believer to offer himself as a service in worship to God. This is the reasonable expectation of our Father in heaven. This is the reasonable expectation that was placed within the heart of the Apostle Paul as he expresses it through this letter that comes down through the ages to each and every one of us so that we may be cut to the heart to fall before our Holy Father in heaven and worship him with the entirety of who we are. Worship him with the entirety of our being. Because when you consider what the word says in 1 Peter 2, 5 about those who are a part of the household of faith, it says that we are a holy priesthood. 
Therefore, Paul, when he uses the terminology of giving yourselves as living and holy sacrifices, as a spiritual act of worship, the picture that he's painting is that of the priestly act of offering yourselves and your lives upon the altar of life unto God. He is compelling, encouraging, and exhorting each and every one of us to engage in this priestly act of sacrificing every aspect of our nature. And when you consider the fact that our humanness is also our part of our bodies, Paul is not only compelling us as an act of worship to offer our physical being, he's compelling us to offer our minds, our wills, our emotions, our desires, our hopes, and everything that we think, everything that we are, every aspect of our being, we're to offer unto God as living and holy sacrifices. This is our spiritual service of worship that is required by God according to the new covenant. And Paul, once he makes this evident to those Roman audiences that would be receiving this epistle, he then moves on in verse 2, and he says, And do not be transformed, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now there, when the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed, he is indicating and explaining to those Roman believers that their inner nature, which has been redeemed by God, should be expressed in their outward actions. He is explaining to them that divine nature that they possess should be expressed in how they go about living their daily lives. He is making this truth evident to them that they are to be transformed. And this transformation is governed by the renewing of the mind that he speaks about. And that renewing of the mind that he speaks about is governed by the Holy Spirit using the word of God to transform, renew, and change the perspective of the believer. That renewing of the mind that he speaks about is about the Holy Spirit governing that process of changing the mind of the believer so that all of their affections are focused on honoring and glorifying God with their lives. This renewing of the mind that Paul speaks about, which comes about through that transformation that the Holy Spirit does in each and every one of our lives. This renewing of the mind is what enables believers to then do exactly what Paul says, that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There, the Apostle Paul is explaining to those Roman believers and to you and I that 
It is only when the mind has been renewed by God. It is only when the spirit has been transformed in the one, into one who is in subject to God. Only then can the renewed mind determine what is the will of God. Only then can the re- renewed mind determine what the desires of God is. Because if you recall when you were unsaved, and I know some of you may not even claim to have never been unsaved. <laughs> you know how we do. <laughs> I was born in the church. <laughs> you know? um, and it's, it's on the flip side of that. I mean, it's not funny because sometimes when you do go out and you share the gospel with people or share it with your family members of people at church, um, people at work, that's the response is, oh, I grew up in the church. Um, and the implication there is, I was born saved. (laughs) But according to the scriptures, as we know, no one is born saved. Come on. None of us came out the womb desiring to please God. None of us came out the womb designed to offer our lives as living sacrifices. As a matter of fact, when we did come out the womb, the moment we got to speak, we spoke words of disobedience, right? As soon as we turned, you know, 18 months, one of the first words formed in our lips was no. <laughs> oh, little Stephen, why don't you go? No. <laughs> Where does that come from? That comes from that unregenerate spirit that each and every one of us are born with. And it's not until God redeems us. It's not until God takes us out of the muck and mire of our pride, which each and every one of us exhibited when we lived our lives in opposition to God. It's only when he takes us out of that darkness that is influenced by Satan and he transformed our minds. It is only then that we are able to discern what the will of God is. And when we receive a new heart, when we receive a transformed mind, when we receive a new nature, we as believers are then called to live a life in worship of God. We are called to live a life in glorification of God. We are called to live a life in exaltation of God. We are called to live a life in magnification of God. We are called to live a life in veneration of God. We are called to live a life in adoration of God. We are called to live a life in adulation of God. We are called to live a life in acclamation of God. We are called to live a life in appreciation of God. Because he is the one who sacrificed his son for our sins that we may be redeemed and able to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices that are acceptable to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.